Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Proverbs, chapter 6. We are beginning here, but we will not remain here. Chapter 6 is where we start. The last three weeks, we probably sold more tapes than any time in history. And that is because of the topics that were displayed in the book of Proverbs and we expounded on them. One was the raising of children. Uh, the other was uh, sex education, Solomon style. We talked about the adultery, the affairs in marriage, and what the Bible says about it. And then we discussed last week about sex in marriage. And uh, the reason that piques the interest of so many people is these are simply hot topics. They always will be because they are relational issues. And any time you talk about the family anything, there's lots of interest because that's where people live day in and day out. Uh, No less important, however, is our relationship to our society in terms of our occupation, our job, and how we perform our job, what kind of workers we are. One of the first questions you are asked when you meet someone is what your name is, because that's your identification. We see you, we remember your name, and we identify you with your name. But there's a second part of your identification, and that's usually the second question we ask when we're introduced to someone. We say, oh, what do you do for a living? What is your work? What is your occupation? Because we identify people in society based upon their occupation. John the barber, Jane the lawyer, Chet the worship leader. By their occupations, we also identify them. I found, however, that the Bible is less concerned with what you do for work than how you do your work. Your occupation is not as important as the way you perform. Do you do it with diligence? Do you do it with excellence? Or are you like Charlie Brown in his famous quip when he said, I love work. It fascinates me. I can sit and watch it for hours. Scientifically, work includes two factors. Force and movement. It's measured in foot-pounds. Moving one pound, one foot is the basic unit. But in God's economy, there are different factors. It's not just force and movement but things like attitude, motivation, and quality of work. Quality of work. I have a letter I want to read to you. It's a letter to the editor of the Los Angeles Times. There has been a lot of criticism of people who do not want to work, especially when they are collecting welfare. Most people prefer to work, and that's fine, but others may prefer to sit in the park, go to the beach, or observe the wonders of nature. Those who dislike working should not be penalized by depriving them of the benefits of the society. There is plenty for all. Everyone does not feel the same way about working. Some have built-in feelings about it that makes it very unpleasant for them to work, especially when it is required. Now, this could be looked upon as a handicap. We don't punish others with handicaps. Our society provides for them and should do the same for those with a natural dislike for work. Why can't we live and let live with each to his own style? 
I thought, I wonder if the ACLU ever gets a hold of that letter, they'll probably push for this. I was uh, also reading an article that came from Detroit, Michigan, where somebody walked into the Department of Social Services in Detroit with a gun and shot holes in the ceiling and then set all the offices afire. When he was arrested, he explained why. He said the welfare department wouldn't give him enough money to pay his housekeeper. Now contrast that with the plain directive found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Now there's a lot of sound biblical advice in the book of Proverbs about work. In fact, it is one of the mega themes that rises to the top. As you read the book of Proverbs, there's a lot said about different kinds of workers. And today what we're going to do is look at four kinds of workers mentioned in the book of Proverbs. And uh, the great thing as we go through this is you can examine to see which kind of worker you are. You are in one of the categories, hopefully the last, but not the first three. But you probably know someone perhaps in all of these categories. Now, a warning. We are sailing in tropical waters today. Excuse me, not tropical waters. I wish we were. Topical waters. Meaning this is a topical Bible study, which I am frankly uncomfortable with. I like to do expository teaching. I like to take a text and pick apart each section, each stone of that one text. Unfortunately, Proverbs isn't written the way I like to preach. It is written very topically. In fact, from chapters 10 to the end, there's smatterings of all different topics with no context whatsoever. Just tidbits of Nuggets that are thrown in about different truths, and as we soak our minds going through the Proverbs, we hit all of them. So what we're going to do today is lots of different Bible searching. I'm going to call up lots of different texts. Now, I say it's a warning because if you try to turn to all of them, you'll probably miss the point of it. Unless you are Speedy Gonzalez with your fingers, or you have a laptop computer and quick verse, and you call it right up. Otherwise, uh, you might just want to jot them down for reference. First of all, let's look at the lazy worker. That's the first worker that we're introduced to in chapter 6. Beginning in verse 6. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which, having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. We are introduced here to the lazy worker, here called the sluggard. Even the name sounds bad. It sounds lazy, cumbersome, sluggard. This is the lazy worker. Uh, If you were to read various translations of how they render it, you'd get a composite picture. Uh, The Young's literal translation, rather than using the term sluggard, calls him the slothful one. Uh, The Bible in basic English calls him the hater of work. And in the Living Bible, the lazy fellow. Now, a parallel verse to this or section that I'd like you to turn to 
This is one of those things you can turn to. Proverbs 24. If you turn over there for just a minute. Because these are the major sections about the sluggard. And this is even more descriptive because here's a guy who's evidently a diligent worker walking by the place, the abode of the lazy man. The field. Verse 30. I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. There it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. It sounds like my backyard before spring cleaning. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Now let's understand, first of all, we are not referring here to the unemployed who wants to work. A sad byproduct of societies around the world is that there are people who genuinely will work for food, but they cannot. They'd love to. They actually would work. But this is speaking about the apathetic, I-don't-care personality who refuses to work for a number of reasons. As Christians, we should care about the kind of worker that we are and the kind of work that we do, the quality of work. We need to understand fundamentally that work is not a curse. I've heard people say that work is part of the curse. No, it ain't. In fact, before man ever fell into sin and God cursed the earth in Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 2, it says this, Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. Isn't that interesting? The first thing God did with man before giving him a wife was give him a job. He was a gardener. He was to tend the garden of Eden. Work is not the curse. It's in Genesis 3, the sweat of man's face that is part of the curse. The toil and the breakdown of the body, but not the work itself. In fact, it's part of the Ten Commandments. God says, six days you shall do all your work. That is a commandment. Uh, They didn't have a five-day, two-day-off thing. They had six days of work and one day off. All right, the lazy worker. As we look through the book of Proverbs, we get a picture of him. First of all, he won't focus on things. In uh, chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, a couple questions are posed to this guy. Verse 9, How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. When we ask this guy... Questions like, how long or when? When are you going to get around to that project? We are being too definite for this guy. He can't answer that question. He can't figure out when he's going to start. He can't be committed to saying, I won't do it or when I will do it. Just, well, little folding of the hands, little slumber. Ah, Just kick back for a while. Proverbs describes this person as one who is anchored to his bed. Listen to this. Proverbs 26, verse 14. As a door turns on its hinges, so does the lazy man on his bed. That's his exercise from side to side to side. 
Now, let me tell you, when I was a kid, this is what I was by nature. You might say I was a night person. That's how we describe people who don't like to get up in the morning. And I was one like that. And my mom would wake me up every morning for school. And there was a scenario she would uh, go through. Skip, time to get up. Yeah, thanks. So I turn on the other side. And I go back to sleep. She'd come in a few minutes later. Skip, it's time to get up. Right, be right up. Then I go on the other side. Then I'd say things like, I'm almost dressed. I'm still in bed. Then she'd say, Skip, get up, your breakfast is cold. Finally, Skip, get up, the bus is coming. Now she'd always come in and she finally figured it out. She would basically say, get up, and if I didn't get up, I wouldn't eat and I'd have to find my own way to school, like a bicycle. I'd miss the bus. And after a couple times of doing that, I got the message. I heard of a young kid like that who... Dad said, you're always lazy. You know, you never do any exercise. He goes, Dad, I do exercise every morning when I get up. He said, as soon as I wake up, I go right at it. Up, down, up, down, up, down. I do that for three minutes, and then I say to myself, okay, the other eyelid now. Up, down, up, down. (laughs) All of these proverbs are almost overly descriptive of a guy who just won't get out of bed. He won't focus on things. Another characteristic of the lazy worker, he won't finish things if he ever does start them. It says in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 27, The lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting. Now now picture that. He won't roast what he took in hunting. For some reason, he managed to begin a task. He's going to go get some food. He gets up. He goes for it. He gets some game. But he won't finish the process. He won't even cook it. And so the impulse of work dies quickly with this kind of a person. Uh, Proverbs 19.24 is also descriptive. A lazy man buries his hand in the bowl and will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. Now that's pathetic. He's got his cereal. His cream of wheat is there. He won't even go get a spoon. He just sticks his hand in the bowl. And he won't take it up to his mouth. Now there's an idea behind all of this imagery. It's the imagery of a guy who starts something, but he won't finish what he has started. Therefore, he is unreliable. Every task he goes to, he never finishes it. A man went to his doctor, was not feeling right. And he said, Doctor, I want a thorough physical exam, and I want you to be honest with me. Give it to me straight. Whatever my problem is, I can take it. doctor gave him a thorough exam, and he said, You sure you want me to give it to you straight? He said, Yep, I can take it. He said, Okay, there's nothing in the world wrong with you. You're just plain lazy. The guy said, Well, could you give that to me in medical terminology so I can explain it to my wife? He wanted some fancy name to attach to his problem of being lazy. He won't finish things. Now, I've got to say, too, growing up, I fit this image as well. My dad would always say, whenever you use my tools, you never put them away. And if you're going to use my tools and work on a job, part of finishing the job is putting away my tools instead of leaving them strewn all over the garage. And I... Learned that lesson, thank God, by strong discipline from my parents. So he won't focus on things, and if he ever does, he won't finish things. And the third characteristic of the lazy worker, 
is that he won't face things. What I mean by that is that he's always got an excuse. It's too hot, it's too cold, it's too dangerous, it's too hard. Listen to what it says in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 13. The lazy man says, there's a lion outside. I shall be slain in the streets. I can't go do that. Well, what if there really is a lion outside? Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Proverbs 20, verse 4. The lazy man will not plow because of winter. He will beg during harvest and have nothing. Here's the guy who will not face things. He always has an excuse and he rationalizes his laziness because of all of the excuses. He can come up with more. If he runs out of that one or you try to explain why that's an invalid excuse, he'll come up with another one. He is rationalizing now his laziness. He's always got an excuse. I heard the good definition of an excuse one time. It's this. An excuse is simply the shell of a reason stuffed with a lie. That's the lazy worker, having a shell of a reason stuffed with a lie. His poem might be something like this. I've gone for a drink and sharpened my pencils. I've searched through my desk for forgotten utensils. I reset my watch. I adjusted my chair. I've loosened my tie and straightened my hair. I filled my pen and tested the blotter and gone for another drink of water. Adjusted the calendar, I've raised the blind, I've sorted the erasers of all different kinds. Now, down to work, I can finally sit. Oops, too late, it's now time to quit. (laughs) This type of person is always talking himself into reasons why the job can't get done, at least by him, maybe by others, but certainly not by him. And the problem is he starts believing his own press, even though there are others around him who would help him to go a different course of action, a diligent course of action. He won't believe them. As it says in Proverbs 26:16. the lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. So he won't focus on things to get started. If he ever does, it's the type of person who won't finish the project. And the reason being, he's always got excuses. In other words, this kind of a guy is a procrastinator. His thinking is something like, I'll get to it later when I have more time. Or, I know it's important, but it's just not convenient for me right now. The problem with this is many people do that with spiritual choices. The work of Jesus Christ applied to their life. They will often put it off. Like the New Testament example of Felix, not the cat, Felix the procurator of Judea. And Paul stands before Felix and shares the gospel with him. And Felix listens and he trembles. He's moved and convicted, but he said, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. Tragedy is, he never did. Time went by and he died and there's no record that he ever called for Paul. He simply procrastinated about that decision. Now let's face it. We all procrastinate in certain areas of our lives. There's always certain kinds of projects that we have to say no to because we live in a system of priorities, which is most important. But here is the description of a guy who does this as a lifestyle. His life is filled with projects left undone. And because of these first three characteristics, he won't focus on things, he won't finish things, he won't face things, it leads us to a final characteristic about this kind of worker. And that is, he won't be fulfilled. 
he won't be fulfilled. In other words, he's restless. He is unsatisfied and he is frustrated. Proverbs 13.4, the soul of a lazy man desires but has nothing. Proverbs 21.25, the desire of the lazy man kills him for his hands refuse to labor. Now, why is that? There's a frustration because work is meant to produce a sense of satisfaction. When you can finally complete a task, there ought to be a sense of accomplishment, even if it's a little task. Hey, I did it. I brought closure to it. It's now over. That's why God said in the Ten Commandments, six days you shall do all your work. I've given you a whole week. Finish it in six days. Get it all done. So on the seventh day, you can rest. It's all over. So the idea behind all of these scriptures is that as believers, our attitude should never be just get by. Rather, our attitude should be our love for God flows out from the pews and into the workplace. And it's seen in the way we work. Now let's apply this for a minute before we go on to the second type of worker. Let's take the liberty to apply this in a spiritual sense to the church. You see, God has given us a work to do upon the earth, a purpose, meaning. We are not to just work in society. We are to work for the Lord and be His representatives in society, to spread the gospel, to be salt and to be light. Yet I think many times the church finds itself in the same predicament that Dorothy and her companions found themselves in the Wizard of Oz. They're on their way to the city of Oz and they nearly succumb to the spell of those poppies. As they walk through the field, they start getting drowsy and lazy as they smell the odor and the aroma of the poppies. Oz is right there in the distance. Many times as Christians, we know Jesus is coming back. We talk about it. We study about it. We rejoice in it. We see the gates of heaven almost right in front of us. Yet it seems like we take the baton of what he's called us to do and just sort of slough it off. One person in looking at the American church said, I have found lots of weaknesses in the American church, and they got to me. He lists them. Interest in missions? Only casual. Spirit of sacrifice? Not much. Willingness to serve? Only if convenient. Burden for a lost world? Not really. How could I do anything but become cynical? Unfortunately, I did. May that be not named among us. That we wouldn't be lazy on the spiritual job that God has given us. Okay, back to what we're uh, all about here. Let's talk about the second type of worker, and that is the lying worker. The lying worker. The first is the lazy worker. The second is the lying or the deceptive worker. This is the kind of person who on the job is not above board but deceives people. It says in Proverbs 11, verse 18, The wicked man earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness reaps a sure reward. Also Proverbs 21, verse 6. I know you're trying to turn to all these. You're not going to make it. It describes a person as getting treasures by a lying tongue. In other words, this guy's a thief on the job. He's not above board. His style is mentioned in Proverbs 10, as having the treasures of wickedness. In other words, he's taken them by stealing them. If the lazy worker thinks, I'll get to it someday, it's really not important now, the lying worker rationalizes like this. No one will ever know. This company's so big, 
I've worked long and hard for them. They owe this to me. And so they will steal. Now, of course, as Christians, this is unacceptable. It goes without saying that as Christians on the job, we're not to steal anything at all. We're to live uh, flawlessly before the world. So they see the manner of lifestyle with which we do our work that reflects God. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said, The one who has been stealing, let him steal no more, but let him do something useful with his hands. He ought to work, Paul said. However, stealing from one's employer is more commonplace than you might think. There's a lot of ways people can do it. Number one, they can take things. Paper clips, erasers, pens. They'll never miss it. It's only a desk (laughs) or a fax machine. So what? This is a big company. There's a chain, a drugstore chain called Super D Drugstore down in the southeast part of the United States that started what they call integrity testing. And the vice president of the corporation said that they have saved $400,000 from stolen goods by implementing this new thing called integrity testing that people were just ripping things off out of the workplace. Another way to do it is by calling in sick when you're not. And you can rationalize, well, I've been well this whole year. I haven't taken any sick sick days. They owe me a sick day. Yeah, if you're sick. But you can rob your employer from a full day's work by lying, therefore by stealing from him. A third way is telephone calls. This is very common. Unauthorized ones, I mean. Long-distance unauthorized ones. When you don't get the permission, and so you use their nickel to make long phone calls. Or how about... Checking in late and leaving early, or uh, longer lunch breaks, or standing around and just shooting the breeze. You know, a study done recently showed that Americans at an average admitted to just shooting the breeze, goofing off 20% of the time, which is one day a week. Add it up. Uh, Handing in false worksheets. You may have heard of the man who died and he's standing before St. Peter. All the dumb jokes talk about the guy standing before St. Peter at the gates and Peter has this checklist, which is erroneous, but here's the joke. (laughs) The young man stands there and he looks at Peter and he says, Excuse me, Peter, uh, with all due respect, I think a mistake has been made. I'm only 35 years old. I shouldn't be dead. And Peter said, let me check the records. And so he checked the records. He said, according to the hourly work work reports that you've been handing in, you're 97 years old. (laughs) He falsified the amount of hours that he worked. That's stealing. So that's the lying worker. A third type of worker mentioned in Proverbs is the laborious worker. The laborious worker. Proverbs 28, verse 22. A man with an evil eye hastens or eagerly strives for riches. And the NIV says, a stingy man is eager to get rich and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. Now this type of worker is a guy who's driven, or a gal who's driven. Driven in his or her work. Instead of being lazy, it's the opposite it would seem. There's a neurotic compulsion to work. But the motivation is because I want to get bucks. Relationships don't matter. Leisure time doesn't matter. Other people don't matter. As long as I can work, that I might get more money just to better myself. You might say this is a workaholic with an attitude. 
He knows that he can't serve both God and money, so he's chosen just to serve money. He's very open about that. One commentator said, Our generation has become a generation of people who worship our work, work at our play, and we play at our worship. Again, we're a generation of people who worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. This kind of worker epitomizes that. He's greedy for gain, and he's very selfish. He has not learned that money makes a great servant but a poor master, but he is under the ownership of money, more money, and I'm never, ever satisfied. I was reading a book the last couple of years, and there's a little section that intrigued me. They asked people value questions. What they would do for $10 million. What would you do and what wouldn't you do? Where would you draw the line? And the book went on to reveal that one out of four said they would abandon their entire family for that amount of money. Almost that many, 23% said they would become prostitutes for a week. About 16% said they would be willing to leave their husband or wife. And 3% said they would put their children up for adoption for $10 million. The conclusion of this little section in the book is that everybody has a price when it comes to their values. Well, that price for some can be set very low and for others it can be very high. In the New Testament, Paul warned Timothy and in fact the whole church about those who are eager to get rich. There's nothing wrong with capitalism, but when it's a compulsive drive, there's something wrong with it. First Timothy 6.9, he said, Those who desire to be rich will fall into temptations and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. It's not those people who are. It's those people who want to be and will not stop at anything until they get it. Many a man, many a businessman, many a husband, a family head, for that matter, many a woman, have fallen by the wayside and been drowned by a compulsion to work. And it's not just men. It can be women. It can be almost in any kind of situation. Consider this letter to Ann Landers, where the husband said, I have lost my wife. No, she didn't die. She didn't leave home to make a career for herself. She didn't run off with another guy. She became hooked on refunding. Dolores, which is his wife's name, is constantly clipping coupons, mailing rebate forms, uh, saving, filing product wrappers and labels. Nothing can be thrown away in case it one day might be proof of a purchase. As a result of collecting refunds and coupons, she has piled up enough food to last for two years. On my last trip around the house... I counted 34 boxes of dried cereal, 27 boxes of crackers. We can't even have company because the house is so cluttered. I doubt Dolores makes the minimum wage for all the time she puts in, but even worse, it has turned her into a minimum wife. What should I do, Anne? I'm ready to send her back to her mother for a refund. (laughs) Now, the point of all that is any of us can put a pursuit after money or after product before our family. We can so jumble our priorities that that neurotic compulsion to get more, either money or goods or just the pursuit of it, can take precedence over that which is very important. 
our family, our children, our marriages. Let's move on then finally to the fourth worker. I hope you find yourself in this camp. I call it the loyal worker, the loyal worker. There's many scriptures, in fact, in almost all of the scriptures that I have quoted so far, when it talks about the lazy person or about the uh, guy who steals from the job or about the guy who just wants to get rich, there is always, in those cases, a comparison with this last type of worker, the loyal worker. This type of worker is a class act. He is reliable. He's a hard worker. Thus, he is a good witness and reflects well his master God. It's evident in the scripture that work is good, that labor is good, that toil is good. Now, I realize in our society, we have gotten more and more away from toil. We've moved our society into the management phase. And uh, hard toil and labor is sort of something of the... uh, Industrial revolution, we don't do it that much. In fact, we work to take the work out of life. Creature comforts, drive-throughs. Somebody once said, most Americans would drive their car to the bathroom if the doors were big enough. (laughs) Anything to make it all easier. Solomon had a lot to say about work. Even though he was a pampered king, he writes about good hard work. Uh, one of his most famous sayings and is in the third chapter of Ecclesiastes. is sort of a, a general timeline of life. He says, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Included in that list, there is a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted, a time to build up, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones, and a time to sow. That's work. All of those things are work, and there's a time for all of them. Now, if we take up a picture of this loyal worker in the book of Proverbs, there's a few major things that mark him. First of all, he is diligent. He is diligent, therefore he is full. There are many scriptures that speak of that. Here's a couple. Proverbs 28, verse 19 and 20. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread. A faithful man will abound with blessings. Proverbs 10, 4. He who is of a slack hand will become poor, But the hand of the diligent makes rich. The word diligent is a Hebrew word. Charutz is the Hebrew pronunciation. It literally means a sharpened edge of something or to cut. It describes a person who is decisive, sharp. A person who is disciplined. A guy who says, let's go for it. Because he's disciplined, he's full. Another characteristic, he is wise, therefore he is promoted. Proverbs 14.23, In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their riches, but the foolishness of fools is their folly. Whenever a company finds a wise character like this who's diligent at his work and wise about what he does, they usually promote him. They give him raises. He'll eventually make it up to the top. A third, he is consistent, therefore he is satisfied. In Proverbs 13, verse 4, listen, the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. This speaks now of the inner satisfaction. Not just he's hard worker, therefore they give him a raise. It's his soul, the inner man of the diligent shall be made rich. The same chapter, 19th verse, a desire that is accomplished is sweet to the soul. 
See, all this speaks of the inner satisfaction of a job well done. It's interesting. You can compare all four types of workers. And the first three speak about the end result of their work. They're never satisfied. The lazy man is never satisfied. He's always frustrated. He says, yeah, I need to do that. I want to do it. But he never finishes it. He's not satisfied. The second guy never worked for it. He stole it, so there's no satisfaction. The third guy is never satisfied because he always wants more. But the fourth guy does his job, and there's a sense of satisfaction that he has done it well. Let's face it. The world needs kinds of workers that are loyal, that are diligent, that are consistent, and that are wise. What kind of worker are you? Would you be characterized as one who is lazy, hinges on the bed, all of that exercise side to side? One who would justify stealing time or stealing items at work? You've rationalized your thinking. A person who's desirous just to get rich and you can have a soul that is astray? Or would you be considered a loyal worker? Now, Jesus made it clear several times, but especially in the Gospel of Luke, that we can never separate our secular with the spiritual. That the material world is an indication of our spiritual walk. And he gave a parable. He said there was a landowner who went into a far country and he gave portions of money and duties to the management. And he said, occupy until I come. And he was, they were expected to work hard and to bring increase. And one of those workers, a couple of them actually, were loyal. See, it was all a test to see if they were faithful in the little stuff. And he came back, and in Luke 19, he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little. You may now have authority over ten cities. In another place, Jesus said, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And there's always this indication of the way we work in the physical material world is an indication of the master that we serve and the relationship we have with God. Besides that, it's a witness to other people. It's a witness to other people. Remember, Paul said that we should work with our own hands, that we might walk properly toward those who are unbelievers. What a witness it would be for the unbeliever to say, you know, you are so diligent at what you do. Why is that? You can share that with them. Because I'm doing it because I serve another master, another Lord. Our work reflects our God, our master. Occupy or do business until I come. God wants to do a work on this earth. But God never does a work apart from human instruments. Did you know that God could do everything alone? He could evangelize alone. He could get the message out alone. He could do a lot of things, all things by himself, but he limits himself to his children. So we can't just say, well, you know, no big deal. I won't work hard. Just whatever God. Just it's all God. Do you hear the story of the preacher who bought some land? A couple acres of land he saved up. It was inexpensive and it was run down. The land, the house on it, they were beat up. It was a shack. He spent two years of days off and vacations fixing it up. He, uh, took the tree stumps that were there because they had died, pulled them out, planted new shrubs, flowers, fixed up the house, painted it, put a new roof on it, new windows, new stone walkway, even little flower boxes out by the window. It took him two years. 
turned it into a beautiful little spot. The last coat of paint was going on the mailbox out front. His neighbor had been watching the process from a distance for two years and finally walked over. And he said, well, preacher, i got to hand it to you. You and the Lord have done a pretty fine job in fixing up this old place. The preacher smiled and said, well, I suppose so, but you should have seen it when the Lord had the place all to himself. Now, there is a truth in that, believe it or not. God commissions us to, in our work, the way we do it, reflect Him, the Master. Occupy until I come. So let excellence be the mark we leave in our work. Excellent job. When you hear the name Stradivarius, what do you think of? Cheap old instrument? Worthless thing? No, Antonio Stradivarius, the great violin maker, gave instructions to everybody who worked for him that no violin was to go out of the shop unless it was as near perfect as human hands could make it. He said this, God needs violins to send his music out into the world. And if any violins are defective, God's music will be spoiled. And his whole philosophy of work, his work ethic, is in this sentence, Other men will make other violins, but no man shall make a better violin. That's why his name is still immortalized. When you hear the name Stradivarius, you think of excellence. How much more, as children of the King of Kings, should whatever occupation we find ourselves at, should we not give diligence to give excellence in what we do, that we might reflect him and show ourselves proper to those who are outside. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Proverbs, and it mentions all of these types of workers. Lord, we thank you for that great commission you have given us to preach the gospel to every living creature. And we do that in a number of ways. One of the ways we do it is the example that we set when we're around other people that we work with. There are work ethics of the world, but then there is the work ethic of the Christian. Only by a work of your grace, Lord, is this possible. And so we ask you, we give ourselves, Lord, to diligent, excellent work in the name of Jesus Christ. That people will see it. And people will know that we serve a master, a craftsman one who has worked on our life and changed it from glory to glory into the same image. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. We're married. Lord, I pray that we would learn to understand, to enjoy the differences, Lord, I pray that you would help us to enjoy one another deeply, emotionally, sexually, to stay upon your path, shunning those opportunities for illicit behavior, living under your accountability. Lord, you've given us this tremendous gift of life to enjoy. It is so awesome when our eyes are fixed upon you. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.